This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Why did Russia go to war in Ukraine? And how might the invasion change the futures of the two countries? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy and global politics. Today, I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations. The war in Ukraine explained. For the next four Thursdays, we're going to attempt to bring clarity to one of the biggest and most confusing political events of our lifetimes. In this very first episode, we're going to talk about the country responsible for the war, Russia. We're going to try to understand why Vladimir Putin decided to launch the invasion, what Russians think about the war, and how the invasion might change the country's future. To explore all of this, I've invited on Yoshiko Herrera, a political scientist who studies Russia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yoshiko is an expert on Russian nationalism, which in a lot of ways is at the center of the current conflict. And I'm really excited to talk with her today. How are you doing, Yoshiko? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Your research focuses on Russian nationalism, uh, which a lot of people see as a really important part of Putin's decision to launch the war. And I guess I'd like to start our conversation by talking about what that means, right? Like, what is Russian nationalism? And obviously, with any kind of nationalism, there's a a different set of varieties of nationalism. And so what is the specific variant that seems to matter when it comes to Putin's thinking, his speeches, his ideology, all that stuff? Yeah, well, that's a good question. There's a couple of different things. I guess the first thing I would say is, There isn't a single coherent understanding of Russian nationalism in Russia or with Putin. He's actually, in his time in power, tried out different strands. And I mean, just a simple example is, you know, you can be a Russian nationalist in the sense of admiring Stalin or a Russian nationalist in the sense of rooting for the Olympic team or rooting for Andrei Sakharov or or something else. So there's different understandings of what it means to be pro-Russian. But I think the relevant piece for this conflict, this war in Ukraine, is this imperial sense of recreating the Russian empire, recreating the lands of the Russian empire, and recreating a sense of strength and importance in the world for Russia's place in the world. So I think the aspect of Russian national identity, I think that Putin is kind of connecting to, is this imperial sense of of importance as a geopolitical actor. So is this imperial identity, is it 
widespread? Is it popular among the Russian elite? Is it something that Putin just personally has decided to glom onto recently? And where does it come from? Is there like a broad intellectual tradition? Is it just a sort of post-Soviet nostalgia for a better time? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about nationalist ideas here? Yeah, I think probably one of the key issues is the demise of the Soviet Union and the sense of humiliation and grievance that Putin feels from that. And that has some resonance with the population. So the Soviet Union collapsed, as you know, in 1991. And after that, you know, there was some moments of hope where maybe democracy was going to take over the whole region. Maybe Russia was going to be reconstituted in a different way. Um, But the 90s ended up with economic turmoil, a lot of inequality, and also... For some people in Russia, a sense that even though Russia did what it was supposed to do, it apologized, it took over Soviet debt, it did different things. What they got in return was, one, NATO expansion, and two, this sense of a weakened Russia that was marginal and not being taken seriously in the world. So the humiliation following the end of the Soviet Union, I think, is something widely shared, not just in Russia, but you know, in other parts of the world, too, that people saw the Soviet Union fell apart and Russia was weakened after that. And there's other events that contribute to that, including the humiliating military loss, actually, in the first Chechen War. So the sense of humiliation is kind of tied directly to the end of the Soviet Union. But the reconstitution of a great Russia or an important strong Russia goes beyond just reclaiming the Soviet space or the position that the Soviet Union held, but actually harkens back to this imperial identity. And so that's where Putin has tried to meld together the resurgence of the Russian Orthodox Church, plus claiming all the admirable or better parts of the Soviet legacy. So he doesn't focus on deficits and economic deprivation, but rather on especially the defeat of the Nazis by the Soviet Union. Which explains the denazification rhetoric, right, in his war aims surrounding Ukraine, where he's trying to conjure up Russian historical memory of essentially their greatest and and really the world's greatest military victory and conflict. Yes. Right, trying to position the Ukrainians as the Nazis reincarnated. Yeah, the denazification actually, it plays a couple of different roles, I would say. So one is Putin has been almost obsessed with the past. So there's a lot of focus on the past and in particular on the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. So he has just pushed that over and over and made this veneration of the Soviet victory, you know, just a central part of Russian identity today, actually. And the victory over Nazis is like the greatest thing that could have been done ever, and Russia was responsible for it. But in addition, one of the complicating aspects of Ukraine for Russia is that there's been various points in Ukrainian history where they have tried to pull away from the Russian Empire or from Russian Soviet domination. And one of those is during World War II. So following collectivization and the deaths of more than 3 million people during collectivization in the Soviet Union. That's that's the mass famine called the Holodomor, if I'm pronouncing it properly. Yes. In the 1930s. Right. So if you just start from that point in the 1930s, um, when the Germans invaded parts of Ukraine in World War II, some Ukrainians were not averse to getting rid of Soviet rule and trying to break free from the Soviet Union. And so this embrace of Germany or Nazism is part of 
the anti-Ukrainian rhetoric under Putin, that it's not just that the Soviets defeated the Nazis, but that the Ukrainians are somehow complicit in Nazism and supporting Germany. And it's a more complicated story, but I think it's getting to this idea that Ukraine needs to be punished as well as reined in and brought back under Soviet or Russian control. I mean, obviously it's Russia today, but it it connects back to this Soviet control. You know, it's a really interesting point in the, the way that you phrase it, because we all know, I mean, outside observers, that the Ukrainian government is not in any way, shape, or form Nazi, and it's ridiculous to assert that. Not only is the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, Jewish, but it also had an election in 2019, and the neo-Nazi parties won about 2% of the vote. So that's hardly a country whose government is dominated or whose population is dominated by those sentiments. But when you frame it as a term to describe Ukrainian resistance to Russian rule, right, as delegitimizing it, well, that reaches back to an even older history, right? After World mm-hmm. War One, the Ukrainians tried to break away and the Soviets tried to stop them, right? Yeah. And the Ukrainian national movement – emerged in the mid-19th century in its modern form, when a lot of countries were getting their nationalist movements. Italy's nationalist movement uh, starts to make significant gains around the same time. And the czar's response was to ban the Ukrainian language, eventually, and to try to stamp out any idea of Ukrainian nationalism. Even though some Ukrainian nationalists, from what I can tell reading the historical record, actually weren't that hostile to Russia. There was a division inside the movement. It strikes me then that Russia has this very long history of seeing Ukraine as its rightful territory, right? The term for Ukraine that was used in, in 19th century Russia translates roughly to little Russia. Well, I that that's right. I mean, this little Russia is, is part of Ukraine, but today's Ukraine is made up of a lot of different pieces, let's say, of former empires. So there's Poland, there's part of Romania, there's part of Austria-Hungary. There's the Cossacks, there's the Crimean Tatars, plus the Cossacks, which overlap with parts of southern Russia. So there's a lot of different histories mixed together in the current territory of of Ukraine. But I think it's fair to say there has been, since the emergence of nationalism and national identity in the 19th century, various attempts by people in Ukraine to assert their independence. And this has been resisted by various elements, either in the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, or in today's Russia, to varying degrees. And they have gone back and forth on different aspects, including on Ukrainian language. And there's been differences even since 2014, because even some of the historical divides between ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians, or Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, have really changed since the invasion in 2014. And there's a lot more unity across groups that at one time might have been politically divided. So right now, there is a Ukrainian state that's recognized internationally. There are different groups with different histories in that state, but they have largely come together under a banner of Ukrainian nationalism. And that's something that I think that Putin and his people just haven't it's it's not that they just don't want to recognize sovereignty. They also have totally ignored the existence of a Ukrainian nation or a Ukrainian national identity, I think to their detriment. I mean, that's one of the reasons they thought they would be greeted as liberators, because they just don't understand the reality of how people in Ukraine feel about Ukrainian independence. So, you know, we've been talking about this expansive, long arc history, right, and, and, a, and a series of repeated attempts by various different Russian political entities to repress Ukrainian 
uh, independence and national identity up to and including right the 2014 invasion of the Donbass. I mean, it seems too reductive to say the conflict is just about that. It's just about Putin embracing a particular vision of Russian history and Russian destiny that yeah. involves the reassertion of control over Ukraine. But at the same time, it seems like that's at the center of it, right? How do you think about this history's role in producing the current conflict and how much it can and can't explain of what Putin has done so far? Yeah, I, I think it's important, but I guess I would put it as one of three background factors. And I say background only in the sense that this is a case where I think we really have to recognize that there is some individual choice and individual agency. Putin is increasingly a personalistic dictator. He's increasingly isolated. And I think it's pretty clear that it was his decision to invade. And the invasion could have taken different forms. It could have only focused on the Donbass or on the two um, republics, which is what he said initially it was going to be about. So the way that it's played out, I think we have to say part of it is about a personalistic decision by Putin. But having said that, it's not just about individual psychology. There are these other factors that would guide that decision. So this sense of imperial identity is one of them. But the other thing I think that's very important, and that gets to the NATO expansion question, is about avenging the 1990s and redoing this humiliation. The Russian side has said this over and over since 2014, that the new world order that was supposed to be established after the end of the Soviet Union, that that new world order is over, that that new world order in which Russia is humiliated, is on its knees, was ended in 2014. And so I think that the avenging of the 1990s is part of this. Another piece that's important, I think, is that the internal political processes in Ukraine are threatening to Russia. Most importantly, they've had two successful social revolutions which have kicked out pro-Russian politicians. And that's problematic for Russia, well, let's say in three ways. Number one, Putin does not like the example right there on his border of a successful social revolution. That is absolutely not what he wants to see. That's a problem. Ukraine moving in a democratic, pro-Western direction is also really problematic. That's precisely what they've been trying to stop. And they don't want a democratic government that chooses to be part of Europe. I mean, they're explicit about that. So the democracy pro-Western orientation is a problem. And then the ability of Russia to influence Ukraine, I think you can see that the Putin regime has tried to do this in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's actually amazing to go back and look at all of these steps. Starting with 2004, they poisoned Yushchenko, the pro-Western presidential candidate. I mean, this poisoning, you just see it over and over, including these recent reports that the people involved in the first set of peace talks were also poisoned. Um, Navalny, Litvinenko, Skripkol, etc. But let's just remember, Yushchenko was poisoned with these dioxins. He recovered from that. Um, Yanukovych tried to steal the election, but the court ruled against him. And so Yushchenko came into power. Yanukovych comes back. He's kicked out in 2014. Russia then shifts to another strategy, not only of invading Crimea and starting these wars in the east, but also trying to buy off local oligarchs in the south and in the east. And that actually fails. And there's a lot of discussion now about the Russian thinking that they could just pay off people and get their support has not worked out. They thought Zelensky would be a lightweight and they could get rid of him. So they've actually been trying to manipulate 
domestic politics in, in Ukraine for a long time, and it has not worked. So I think that's another part of the proximate cause that gets us to 2022 of why they decided to take military action at this point. Yeah, that that's the thing that gets me about all the various different theories of what made this happen. Is that they have a hard time explaining escalation. Right. And as you say, there's been this pattern of Russian interference in Ukrainian domestic politics and Russian attempt to exert control over it for for quite some time now, right? This is not a new thing. And obviously, 2014, as you were just describing, was a real military escalation with Russian troops, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, entering Ukrainian territory, right? Little green men in Crimea and so on. Right. But something happened around March of last year that led Russia to start putting more troops on Ukraine's border and I don't know when exactly that that buildup turned into a concrete decision to invade. It's not clear from the public record right now when Putin set his mind to the decision to launch the big war. But around then, clearly, there was a, a decision to start escalating in Russian strategy. And it doesn't really track well with the NATO explanation. Obviously, you know, the history explanation is a bit trickier, though there are a bunch of reports that Putin spent a lot of time in isolation just like – talking to ultra-nationalists and reading ultra-nationalist histories, and that that may have caused a change in his attitude towards Ukraine. I find that somewhat credible. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what what your take is on what, what explained the change in Russian attitudes. Yeah, I think the specific timing is going to be one of the questions that historians focus on. Because a lot of you know what we were just talking about in terms of background factors have been there for a while. But I think there's a couple of things. One is from... A political point of view, Zelensky is elected in 2019. Zelensky is one factor, I think. They may have thought initially, he's a comedian, he's not serious, and he can be easily controlled or manipulated, etc. But that turns out to be not the case. And something that happens in in the spring of 2021 is the house arrest of the pro-Putin Medvedchuk. And Medvedchuk is the godfather of one of Putin's daughters. Wow. And he was the prime minister. And so people think, you know, Medvedchuk's arrest may have been, you know, one of the triggers, although, I mean, he's not that important. So you can't pin the whole war on him, but that's one of the things. So I think, again, looking at the internal politics of Ukraine to see what are the things that they thought they could do to influence Ukrainian politics and, and what was happening in 2021 that led them to think that they were losing control. I mean, Zelensky in his speech a couple of days ago mentioned that this attempt to control the regions also failed in 2021. And so that may be another factor. But the military buildup, I think a key question is, was it from the start set up as a invasion or did they think, well, we would build up and like make demands on implementing the Minsk agreements? Would we use it as leverage, as a bluff, but we weren't actually planning to invade? The poor performance of the Russian army suggests that possibly the military was not actually planning a major invasion, but was thinking this is going to be this big buildup, but then we would go home or we would have a limited incursions into the Donbass or something like that. Some people are saying, well, now that they've invaded, we know they've been planning to invade all along. But I would say, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know when the exact decision was made, but I tend to think it was not made last year, that there was still some possibility for some other kind of outcome, including some other kind of military outcome, even if the military was going to be used in some way, did it have to be in the precise way that it turned out? I I tend to doubt that decision was made that long ago. 
I think something that's interesting that I heard from an interview with Daniel Jurgen yesterday, which is focused on energy politics, is, you know, the development of shale oil and gas in the U.S. in the last decade and a half has really changed the oil and gas industry. And the ability of the United States to export LNG, liquefied natural gas, which has really only happened since 2016, is something that has been noticed in Russia. And it has possibly made some decision makers in Russia understand that the more that develops in the U.S., the weaker their position is going to be vis-a-vis Europe and Europe's reliance on their oil and gas. So if Russia were thinking about what is our relative power now vis-a-vis Ukraine and vis-a-vis leverage on Europe today versus five years in the future, it's possible that they thought time is running out and we need to exercise this option now because we'll be weaker. I, I don't know if that was their thinking, but I think you could look at some economic and military factors and consider that if Ukraine, for example, under a Biden administration was going to get more weapons and more military support, that would certainly weaken Russia's chances of an invasion later. But, you know, we don't know if they were actually thinking about their relative strength today or not, or whether that was a factor. It's just a, it's a possibility though. Stay with us for more of my conversation with Professor Yoshiko Herrera after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, When you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So there's, there's a phrase that you used a few minutes ago that I, I just keep rolling around in my head while I'm listening to you talk. And it's this idea of avenging the 1990s. And it strikes me as so telling about 
a lot of the different factors that we've been talking about so far. It ties in neo-imperial nostalgia and a sense of, of loss and decline among Russia. It ties in the NATO story, which I think is complicated. You and I have talked about this before privately, but it's it's not as clear-cut as it looks like, but it remains a factor. It ties in even some of the economic factors, given Russia's uh, descent in the 90s and its restoration to a degree under Putin. Of course, now it's in a collapse situation right now. It, it almost seems like a, like a master category for thinking about Russian foreign policy mm-hmm. in the past several decades under Putin. Am I wrong here, or is this really like the centerpiece of, of what's been happening recently? I think it's interesting to think of it as a sort of master narrative, because I think it does combine a lot of different elements. And one of the interesting things is, actually, Putin constantly makes reference to the chaos of the 90s and how under his regime, under his leadership, Russia is free from all of that. And I actually think that's one of the reasons the sanctions could be problematic for him, because he said he's going to do various things that he hasn't done. But one thing that people could say up until a month ago that he had done is we didn't have this crazy chaos of the 1990s and the devaluation and all this economic uncertainty. So there might be stagnation, but at least there is certainty. So I think actually the freedom from this chaos of the 90s is part of his legitimacy and it's a problem for him. But yeah, I mean, in terms of a master narrative, I think it combines a lot of things, delegitimation of democracy in the West, because they supposedly tried that in the 90s and and it didn't work out. The neoliberal sort of free market approach as opposed to state-controlled capitalism or state-directed capitalism. That's another another aspect. They're openly talking about nationalizing assets of companies that have pulled out of Russia due to the sanctions. So the 90s were about liberalization, and Putin is clearly not interested in just letting markets be you know, markets. He wants to control them. I think the international element is probably the most important in terms of working back from that humiliation. Although, you know, again, ironically, you can't really think linearly in terms of how far back has Russia been pushed by this invasion. But I think all of the gains, to the extent that there were gains in terms of international legitimacy and respect, et cetera, I'd say virtually all of that, goodwill, et cetera, has been lost by this invasion. So, you know, Russia is just in a, in a much worse situation internationally than I think many people could have imagined just, just a few months ago. So, What does that mean to ordinary Russians? As far as we can tell from the outside, very few of them knew or believed that this war would be coming. Russian propaganda outlets would even make fun of Western intelligence agencies for suggesting that a war was coming, right? Saying, oh, you predicted it would happen on this day, and then it didn't. Don't you look dumb? When, of course, a war was in fact coming. These were comments published in February by Russian officials and and media outlets. Then we, we get to the actual war. And as far as I can tell, more Russians know that it's happening, but there still are a significant percentage who believe that this is a limited special military operation focused on the Donbass rather than a wide-scale, full-scale, really, invasion of Ukraine. What sense do you have of how Russian public opinion has evolved since the war began? Yeah, I think this is another good question that we're going to see how how it works out. But I think there are some things we already do know. We do know that the public, as you said, was not prepared for a war in Ukraine. And that may be one of the reasons why they continue to not allow the word war to be used. They have a problem with saying they're going 
to war with Ukraine or against Ukraine, because that goes against the narratives that Ukrainians are the same as Russians or they're all one people. If you're all one people, why would you be at war? And so you have to be at war, not with Ukrainians, but at Nazis. Phrasing it in terms of, well, we're helping the Ukrainians liberate them from the Nazis. You know, maybe that is something that they can convince people of, but Nazis don't exist. So, I mean, they haven't really made that, that case. And the denazification is also sort of something new they came up with, the weapons of mass destruction. That was something new. The anti-NATO is a constant. So they have support within the public for being anti-U.S., anti-Western, anti-NATO. But the anti-Ukrainian part, I think, it's not clear how successful that's going to be. But there are a lot of people who have supported Putin for a long time, and they have a pretty fixed almost identity-based support for him, where they're willing to accept a lot of propaganda, a lot of lies, a lot of nonsense, uncritically. And so it might be that the people who are hardcore Putin supporters are willing to go along with whatever he says. But it might be that there are various things that cause people to, to start questioning. For example, all the media control. If you cut off media outlets that people used to use, like Instagram, they're either going to stop looking at their phone or they're going to start looking at something else. So if they start saying, okay, I can't see Instagram, I can't watch this TV channel, I can't do this, they might, you know, start looking for other sources and that might lead them to new information that might lead to questioning. But, you know, as we know from other places, there are some people that are willing to live with sort of nonsensical explanations or hypocrisy for a long time without questioning it if it aligns with their underlying political interests. So I think we know that the people who don't support Putin are anti-war, but of the Putin supporters, how many of them start questioning? It's hard to say. Some people thought, well, if there you know, are a lot of casualties, people will start questioning. But remember COVID and how many hundreds of thousands of people have died due to COVID, and it doesn't necessarily make people question their political commitments. So I think that's unclear. Something else that I find very disturbing, if you go back and look at the Holodomor and the famine and the Stalinist justification for it, one of the justifications, which is ridiculous, but was used, is that the Ukrainians themselves are causing this famine, that it's wreckers and saboteurs on the Ukrainian side that caused the famine. And some of them have gone so far as to kill their own family members in order to you know, work against the Soviet Union because they're agents of Poland or something like that. So blaming famine victims for their own death sounds you know, crazy. Who would believe that? But that's, to my mind, the same thing as saying when you see a residential building in Mariupol that's bombed to smithereens and saying, oh, the Ukrainians did this themselves or these nationalists have done this. I mean, there's a similar kind of ridiculousness to it. But, you know, we don't know. We don't know if people will go for that. I think something that's very different, though, between 1930s and now and, and also the Chechen Wars and now is that the Putin people, they think if they cut off external media nobody will know what's happening. But everybody is watching Ukraine right now. So it's not the same as the 1930s when actually people externally didn't know about the famine. And maybe they're delusional in thinking that by cutting off foreign media in Russia, nobody will know what's happening in Ukraine again. But I, I mean, I think it's going to be harder. It's, it's not just foreign media in Ukraine, right? It's also domestic Russian media outlets 
that have been previously independent, right? Like Rain TV. Yeah. One thing that's striking in this war is, is the transformation of the Russian model of repression. Like it used to be a textbook example of what political scientists would call competitive authoritarianism or managed democracy, insert your term here, where the incumbent party held elections, but they were basically guaranteed to win them and they didn't need to resort to ballot stuffing to do so. They just had changed the rules of the game, rigged them so dramatically that they would necessarily win, plus some degree of organic support among the population. Russia's increasingly been moving away from that towards a just like outright authoritarian model. But since the war, like really all the veneers of democracy the free speech rights, individual freedoms, that those have just been stripped away. Yes. To what extent does this represent a real durable transformation or a move even towards permanent totalitarianism of, of the Soviet kind in Russia going forward? I think, let's say, from around 2007-ish, uh, Russia had become an authoritarian country, and it's become more so every year, every election since then. So the electoral manipulation increased, the media censorship increased. An important, really important part for Putin is the sidelining, jailing, attempting to assassinate any political opponent. You don't want to just win the election. You need to keep anyone who's remotely possible of challenging you off the stage. So that's definitely increased. But also, especially since 2011-12, I think the use of violence in Russia against protesters, against opponents, etc., has really ramped up. So they're on a clear trajectory towards increasingly focusing on violence rather than charisma or economic payoffs or other kinds of manipulations to maintain power. So in some ways, this is, you know, just another level of that um, in terms of arresting people on the street, you know, for holding up empty pieces of paper or for basically doing anything so, yeah, I think it it is definitely moving to another level of authoritarianism. I mean, people keep saying it could become North Korea. I actually think it's more like becoming Stalinist. If you go back to increasing personalization of power, the use of violence, the internal purges, the arrests of the people in the security services we saw a couple weeks ago, but there's just some important differences because the world is just much more connected now. So I think that you're not going to be able to have the same level of violence in the 1930s that you had under Stalin without people being much more aware of it. You know, people have cell phones. All the media censorship, unless you cut off all phones, you know, you can't actually insulate people from the outside world um, in the way that you could in the past. Connectedness is, though, a double-edged sword, right? It Not only does it help people get new information and provide new avenues for organizing, but it also creates new avenues for state repression, right? New ways that governments can monitor people on these devices. And what we've seen is there have been, I think, pretty significant anti-war protests in Russia so far. The latest data I saw from OVD Info, which is a Russian human rights group, put the number of arrests at about 15,000 at these protests, which have happened in dozens of Russian cities. That's pretty significant, but the number of arrests also indicate that we're not at a protest that's anywhere near, you know, mass regime-threatening levels. Yeah. Which research suggests needs to be about like 3.5% of the population. In Russia, that would be about 5 million people. We're just not seeing that, right? So it, it strikes me that we can hope that Russians will eventually turn on the government, 
But so far, at least, I mean, you know, it's a month into the war. Maybe it's a little too early to generalize. But so far, the government has been pretty effective at not only controlling the information atmosphere, but also in repressing popular dissent in general. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it pains me to admit that the protests, although significant, are not what they would need to be to topple the regime and that the oppression and arrests and fear that the regime has instilled is working to the extent that we're not seeing a lot more people coming out right now. However, I mean, maybe this is a little bit more hope than analysis than you might like, but I still think there's a lot of discontent and there's a lot of um, fear of repression, which means that we won't really be able to predict mass protests very easily because people will be looking to see what happens to other people. And there can easily be a cascading effect where one thing leads to another and people see that, you know, you can't arrest a million people. And so as as numbers grow, there could be, you know, more and more people. I still think there's some uncertainty. We don't really know how the sanctions are going to play out. We don't know if this turns into a, a longer term war of attrition, how many casualties are people willing to accept? We know that from other anti-war protests that they take years sometimes to build. So I think it's right to say that so far, oppression on the part of the Russian government is working in the sense of keeping the millions of people who would need to come out to protest the regime at home. Yeah, for now, the regime you know, has managed both in terms of the elite and the mass level to maintain power because we're not seeing a lot of elite defections either. That's that's the next thing I was going to ask you about, actually, is, is the elite. I was really curious. We've been talking about the mass public, but early in the war, there were these signs of dissent in the Russian elite. You had a few high-profile oligarchs speak out about the war. A Russian tennis player wrote, I believe he wrote, no war on a camera in pen at an international event. You've had a bunch of Russian social media figures protesting this, right? There, there were these high-profile signs of dissent, if not outright defection. And yet that hasn't translated into regime discontent, though we have seen some rumblings, like you mentioned, right, high up officials in Russian intelligence services being put under house arrest, which like who knows what that means, if that's just punishment for poor intelligence in the run up to the war, if it's it was a sign that the intelligence services were unhappy with Putin and were plotting against him. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like elite dissent is one of those things that's hard to read because the most effective forms of it all happen in private, planning a coup, for example. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is that the business elites are pretty clearly sidelined. So you might say, why doesn't, you know, the head of this or that company go talk to Putin? They don't have any access to him from what we can tell. So there may be people who are privately very dissatisfied, but they don't see a way to influence the regime decision. And they may see it just as counterproductive to say they're against the war because it doesn't, they may think it doesn't have any effect. Then, you know, the two kinds of elites that people focus on are sort of the economic oligarchs and the Siloviki or the the military security services. I think one of the interesting things is that Putin has sent to Ukraine to fight some of the same internal security services that he uses to harass and police protesters. So this could present a problem in terms of if you have cities where you've sent away the police uh, that are supposed to be managing protests. I mean, that might create an opening for protests. 
But yeah, at this point, it doesn't look like there's a lot of open elite dissension. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, Roman Abramovich is participating in these peace um, negotiations or conflict negotiations. He was spotted in Turkey and he was supposedly poisoned at one of the first meetings. Um, it's not clear what his role is exactly. Does it mean he's really taking a stand? Does it mean he's trying to save himself or maybe a bit of both? I mean, my expectation is a lot of the oligarchs are looking to save themselves, looking to see how they can get off the sanctions list if they're on it. But that may translate into doing something productive. It may not, but that that's possible. The poisonings to me at the negotiations were this really confusing moment in trying to interpret how Russia is approaching off-ramps to the war. It, it seemed, I don't know exactly if the Russians were negotiating in good faith, but certainly that there were some actual conversations taking place. And the Financial Times has reported a number of different peace plans and proposals being floated on, on key issues like NATO and the status of the Donbass and such. But then you get these reports that Abramovich is poisoned. Then you have some reports of the Ukrainian negotiators being poisoned. And the poisoning seems to follow symptoms that you've seen in other Russian poisonings or alleged Russian poisonings. And you get the sense that somebody wanted the world to think that this was a Russian plot, right? And and maybe it was. I don't want to be too conspiratorial here, but it. when I'm thinking about the way that this happened, it almost seems like there is significant internal disagreement inside the Russian government itself about how to handle negotiations with Ukraine and that that was playing out with some faction of the Russians targeting somebody who was allegedly representing them in addition to the Ukrainians at negotiations in an attempt to sabotage them. Or, or again, am I, am I being too, too paranoid here, who too drenched in Cold War thrillers to overanalyze this properly? No, I mean, I think the issue of false flags is just a very prominent feature of this conflict, that nobody knows if something is done who did it and why, and the potential for anything to have been a false flag attack seems like it comes up with every big thing that happens. So I think that's the same with the the poisonings. I mean, one thing that Christo Grozov noted, he is from Bellingcat, and he's an investigative journalist. He's one of the people that sort of investigated and uncovered the whole trail of the Navalny poisonings. He's a Bulgarian journalist, but he's very tied into security services in Russia in terms of following closely what's happening with them and figuring things out based on open source documents. And Bellingcat is who was one of the first to drop this story about the poisonings. So Grozov says, well, because Ukrainian government, American government were reticent to acknowledge poisonings. He said, governments may have reasons to not acknowledge poisonings because they don't want to have that derail negotiations, et cetera. But the media outlets like Wall Street Journal, et cetera, who also ran with the stories, they don't have reasons to lie or, or make this up. And so the fact that it's now out in several media outlets suggests there's probably something to the story. But who did it? I mean, that's another level of conspiracy. The Wall Street Journal said it was supposedly hardliners who were dissatisfied with how the war is going that did the poisonings. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, who are the hardliners then? Or like, what what is more hardline than what Putin is already doing? Like, what, what would a hardline approach be other than the bombing of these civilian buildings doing as much damage as you possibly can? I mean, that's what they're doing now. So I don't know 
what it would mean to say hardliners want a different strategy. More of my conversation with Russian politics scholar Yoshiko Herrera after one last short break. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. One thing I want to ask is sort of a big picture future question, which is that there's this idea in Moscow in certain circles, it's sort of unclear the degree to which it influences Putin and the government, that Russia has a a Eurasianist ideology, which is a very particular thing, a vision of Russia's role, its, its geostrategic place, its historical destiny, and that includes a sort of regional hegemony in Eurasia. And that would obviously mean control over Ukraine, among other things. Now, with Russia's military floundering in Ukraine, being unable to execute on a regime change war, is that vision dead? I guess maybe first describe what that vision is and then tell me, is is that vision for Russia's future dead and buried, right? It's just an impossible dream of a stronger Russia than the one that actually exists? Well, I wouldn't say the dream is dead and buried. I mean, I think going back to what is Eurasianism, there's, again, like there's a lot of different strands of it. But, you know, one idea is that you're going to build this counterweight to NATO and Western Europe in the former Soviet space through things like the Eurasian Economic Union. So you have the European Union and then you have the Eurasian Economic Union. You have NATO and you have this collective security organization within Eurasian former Soviet states. So so one is kind of an institutional counterbalancing of West European organizations. There's also this idea, this kind of romantic idea of the Eurasian people as this like special people that are different from Europeans, different from Asians, this mixing of different cultures. That has some overlap with the empire, but the Russian imperial kind of thinking that Putin has been articulating, I think is much more about the strategic competition between European powers and Russia. It's not really that romantic, like we're this special people, but more of Russia needs to look around and see what are the other powerful countries in the world. And it needs to counter power in European countries with building a powerful empire of its own. Now, is it dead and buried? I mean, Putin, I don't think is going to give up. And I think he's going to continue to try to counter NATO. So I think this could be a setback. I mean, something I was thinking about today with the peace negotiations and and this claim that Russia was pulling back from Kiev, I think it's really interesting to think about the parallels to the Chechen wars, again, going back to the 1990s discussion, because the first Chechen war was from 1994 to 96, and it ended in a humiliating defeat for Russian army. And it had similar characteristics of 
The army is supposed to just roll in and have an easy time of it, but they face these fierce nationalist fighters and they end up retreating in a humiliating defeat. Now, after they signed a peace deal in 1996, they spend the next three years demonizing Chechens. And one of the things Putin does is come back in 1999 and prosecute the next Chechen war for 10 years using the kind of violence that we're seeing in Mariupol, et cetera. So something I think is worrisome is if this peace deal allows for, you know, a retreat and this long, complicated border where Russia gets to keep some territory, et cetera, I don't think we're seeing the end of it. I think we'll see a renewed emphasis on demonizing Ukrainians. I mean, going back to the initial point that they were kind of unprepared for this ideologically, that we'll see much more media attention to how many human rights abuses Ukrainians committed, which is, you know, the opposite, basically, of the story. And then we'll see greater preparations for some other kind of additional operation, which, again, like this war started, you could say, in 2014. And this is the second phase of it. But I would not be surprised if there is a temporary peace deal now that there is another version of it. Because I don't see Putin just saying, okay, never mind. I thought we would restore Russia's greatness, but never mind. I'll give up. I don't see that happening at all. So what you just said, combined with something that you said earlier, which is that Russia is, in its domestic political form, retreating to a kind of Soviet totalitarian model, suggests a really dark future for the Putin regime, one in which it maintains legitimacy at home, not through the sort of Putin is kind of popular and soft repression, or as soft as it can be when they're still killing journalists, right? But like not widespread clampdowns on any kind of free information whatsoever. This new, more repressive version of domestic political repression combined with xenophobic hostile, increasingly aggressive propaganda campaign that that culminates in not only like the moral delegitimation of Ukrainians, but but actual violence right against Ukraine and, and who knows what other countries, right? It suggests that Russia isn't going to be chastened by this kind of of really clear at this point misadventure in Ukraine militarily, but actually pushed into a corner and more likely to lash out in certain ways, both domestically and abroad, which is quite scary. Yes. I think that Internally, it is moving to a very dark period, and it's probably going to get darker because, you know, the way that authoritarian leaders would maintain support is either through popular legitimacy, even if it's not through democratic elections, is one way. And I don't see Putin having that. I mean, he has some core supporters, but people are going to look around and see, wow, like the middle class has been decimated. I mean, there's going to be lots of people in Russia who are dissatisfied. So I don't think he can rely on genuine popular support. And media control, I mean, he's he's kind of pushed media control almost as far as it can go. One of the things that's still sort of open is the internet. And they don't have the technical and resource capacity that China does to control the internet in the way that China does. So in terms of closing out every bit of news about the outside world, I don't think they have that capacity. And as I said before, like they can't close off the cell phone. So, you know, there's limits to the media control, but they're going to push that as far as they can. 
And then you have repression. And so that's what they're relying on is repression, arresting anybody that says anything, firing people from their jobs, kicking students out of school, using every kind of administrative resource you can to put pressure on people, taking their apartments away, anything that you can do to make it costly for people to criticize the government. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a very dark period as long as Putin is in power. I mean, there's this like deep irony, and I I use that term deliberately. This war was launched to prevent Ukraine from becoming a democratic Western state that could imperil Putin's domestic model and to limit Ukrainian nationalism and bring it back under Russia's control. And it seems like both of those things at this point are likely to backfire, right? Like the opposite is going to happen. Yeah. You're going to have Ukraine now as a result of this, since Russia can't seem to actually conquer it, that will be by any measure more pro-Western and more committed to a different political model than the Putinist one, and one that will will have no interest. I mean, even in the Russian-speaking, more pro-Russian parts of Ukraine, and those are similar but not coextensive, you've seen a massive, massive level of hostility to the Russian invasion, right? What Putin has done is created an anti-Russia Ukraine. Yes. It's remarkable. The future of Ukraine is completely different than it was a few weeks ago, even. Yeah, it's, I agree completely. And it's, what's also surprising is how, how the Russian side did not anticipate some of this earlier. I mean, I still think it's remarkable that they didn't imagine Ukrainians would resist. I I just don't understand how anyone with even a minimal understanding of Ukrainian politics wouldn't have paid attention after 2014. If you were planning to launch an invasion, you might say, okay, we invaded Crimea in 2014. Then what happened? A lot of people in Ukraine became anti-Russian. A lot of people who were previously voting for pro-Russian candidates stopped doing so. And how do we know that? Because we have academics doing surveys and writing articles and making it very clear that Ukrainian citizens of all different ethnicities and linguistic capabilities have become more pro-Ukraine and anti-Russian since 2014. Not to mention the other sort of nationalistic elements in Ukraine symbols and things like that that have come up, discourse about the Holodomor, et cetera. I mean, there's just like lots of evidence that Ukraine was becoming more anti-Russian and that 2014 accelerated that. And so, yeah, why wouldn't you think invading would have the same effect? I find that to be very surprising, but a kind of symptom perhaps of the isolation of Putin. There's, you know, in political science and economics, you have this idea of competence versus loyalty. And you, as a dictator, may choose loyalty over competence, but this is detrimental to the regime over time because you can't get stuff done because you surround yourself with incompetence. And maybe that explains why they made these mistakes in the military strategy of thinking that they were going to be greeted. But yeah, it's amazing to not recognize that they have created a much more anti-Russian Ukraine and much more unity with the rest of the world than anyone could have imagined. Because remember also that NATO under Trump was greatly weakened. U.S.-European relations were weakened. So it is an irony. It's a strange turn of events that Putin has united the world against Russia and made Ukraine more anti-Russian, pro-European than ever before. Yeah, that that bubble point 
really haunts me, right? The isolation thing. There was a really good article in Foreign Affairs by two Russia scholars called The Bully in the Bubble, making basically the exact point that that you were just saying. Putin has increasingly surrounded himself with loyalists. He seems to be cut off from outside forms of information, and that's likely shaping his decision-making. And then we, we saw a vindication of that thesis, right? A few weeks later, there was the war and seemingly premised on bad information, which then leads me to like a sort of final almost haunting question, which is like, this war is not going to make that better, right? It's not likely that after a massive failure, Putin is going to say, okay, I'm going to get rid of my loyalists and I'm going to install people who are less personally accountable to me and more open-minded and and broad thinking. So if he made this kind of miscalculation with those people and he's going to double down on some of his closest advisors now, what's to stop a similar mistake from happening in the future that leads Russia to make a catastrophic miscalculation? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I I wonder, at some point, don't some of the advisors have to say, hey, the war isn't actually going well? I mean, how long can you continue not sharing negative information with him? Or how long do you all keep lying to each other? It seems like there would be some frank discussion at, at some point, but it's possible that that would just be punished. And so, you know, you're just replaced with somebody else who says, yes, that guy said he couldn't do it, but I can do it. I mean, I think some of the commentary that says, well, Putin, you can't put him in a corner. You have to give him off ramps. I think there's been many off ramps that he hasn't taken. He's chosen this path. I don't see him voluntarily saying, okay, never mind. I'll just do something different. It's hard to see how he comes to a decision to do something different. I don't know how how he gets new information or how he changes strategies. It's hard to see, given the way that he's constructed his regime, how that's going to happen. Yoshiko, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for talking. Oh, you're very welcome. Our special series, The War in Ukraine Explained, continues next week when we focus on the sanctions against Russia and their effects on the global economy. I'll be talking with Washington Post opinion writer Dan Dresner, who's also a professor of international politics at Tufts University. That'll be next Thursday, so make sure that you're subscribed. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. If you have any ideas on these topics or for future guests or things to discuss, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. If you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review and subscribe. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours, Sean Ailey. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. 
Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 